Okay, well, let's uh, continue on together. We're going to open the Bible together and we're going to conclude our series in a moment. But just before we do um, conclude that series, I wanted to remind us as a church of the opportunity that is Ashburnham. Uh, if you don't know already, Ashburnham is the moment in every two years when our whole family of churches gather together for a long weekend. A number of us have already booked up, but I wanted to draw it to your attention because the second price break uh, expires on Friday. So up to Friday, as if you're an adult, you can book in for £105, but after Friday, it'll be £135. I wanted to save you some money. Last time we went, a good number of us went, which was great, and lots of people booked in over the summer, which was great, but they missed the opportunity to book in at a cheaper price. So I wouldn't want you to miss that. Um, but more importantly, even than saving some money, is the actual reason to go, which for me is twofold. One, uh, Ashburnham is a great moment for this community to deepen and grow as a community. I think we always find that a weekend like Ashburnham, the sense of community and friendship uh, grows in a, in a much more quicker way, if you like, than it does on a normal Sunday morning. So community deepens, friendship deepens, we get to pray together, eat together, uh, have sleepless nights, camping together, uh, and so forth. So community definitely deepens. And the second reason is that the whole theme of Ashburnham is make a difference. And the whole uh, weekend is themed around what does it mean to be, uh, wherever your context is, how can you be equipped and empowered to make a difference in that context for the kingdom of God. So it's all about equipping Christians and churches to engage with and bless and be a, a force of renewal and goodness and blessing in the context in which they find themselves, whether that's us as a church in Kingston, or you in your workplace, or your family, or your community, or your neighborhood, and so on. So I think two great reasons to make it a priority and book in for Friday, or by Friday, I should say. So as I mentioned, we are bringing our series Encounter to a conclusion. This is the ninth and final uh, part of our teaching series, and uh, we spent the last eight weeks looking at Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, looking at different encounters that he had, often first-time encounters that he had with people and the transformative effects that took place as a result. And with um, Easter just around the corner, I figured that this, would be an, this passage is an appropriate place to conclude because this encounter this morning, or encounters, plural, uh, is really in the last few days, last few hours of Jesus' life. And so kind of pretty timely with Easter around the corner. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 23. And it's quite a long passage, verses 1 to 26. Uh, just contextually, so you know where you're landing, uh, Jesus has been arrested by the religious authorities. He's been tried twice, found guilty, uh, sentenced to death effectively. Well, definitely. Um, however, at the time, the religious authorities do not have the authority to execute anybody. So they take him to the only person who does, which is the Roman governor. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 1 of chapter 23. <coughs> then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, says Jesus. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. 
And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So throughout this series, we've been taking time to really uh, focus on the person of Jesus Christ, to explore him for who he really is, to learn what it is to encounter him as he really is. And in many of the encounters we looked at so far, Jesus does and says all kinds of things, doesn't he? He, he heals, he raises someone from the dead, uh, he teaches, he questions, he challenges, he does and says all kinds of things. However, You may have noticed in this passage, he does and says virtually nothing. In fact, all he does is he says four words. That's kind of it. And yet, he has four, I would suggest, highly significant encounters with four different people in this passage. You've got Pontius Pilate, who's the Roman governor in charge of Judea at the time. Herod, who is the Jewish king. Um, Well, he's not really a king, he's like a... A sort of pretend king, I suppose. Effectively, Pilate has given him permission to rule uh, Galilee as like a client proxy state of Rome. He's not the same Herod that tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was a baby. He's that guy's son. Then, thirdly, Jesus encounters Barabbas, who's a convicted murderer who had been in prison for trying to overthrow Roman rule. And fourthly, he encounters in a very brief but I think quite profound scene a man called Simon of Cyrene, who was a North African Jew who would have come to Jerusalem specifically for the Passover festival, which is the key Jewish festival of the year. And even though Jesus says and does virtually nothing, there is huge significance in these encounters. And it's a bit like Luke, who's describing this for us. It's a bit like as much as Luke is shining his spotlight on Jesus, it's a bit like Luke is also shining his spotlight on, on humanity. 
It's as though Luke wants us to ask, not just what do we see of Jesus, but also what does Jesus see of us? What is Jesus encountering of humanity? So, I want us to look at these four encounters in turn, and just for each one, ask ourselves, what do we see about Jesus, and what do we see about humanity? What do we see about ourselves, perhaps, in these four encounters? The first of which is with Pilate. So Pilate is only in Jerusalem, He's not, his headquarters was normally in Caesarea. And he's only in Jerusalem because it's the Passover festival. And so he knows that's the key time of the year when Jews from all over the known world will gather in Jerusalem. And as such, he knows there could well be trouble as kind of nationalist and religious sentiment is on the rise. And that's why he's made sure he's in Jerusalem to stop it. His sole interest is he wants to keep the peace and keep his job. And the Jewish religious authorities, the Sanhedrin, they know this. They know that Pilate will have no interest in their religious arguments. The fact that they're furious that Jesus had the audacity to claim to be God and the way to God, they know that's of no interest to Pilate whatsoever. So the only way they're going to get Pilate to agree to what they want, which is Jesus' execution, is to present him as a threat to Roman authority like a rival to Pilate or rival to Caesar. And sure enough, that's the accusation that Pilate hones in on, as you probably saw in verse 3. Notice that he ignores the reference to Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah. He's not interested in that at all. He says, are you the king of the Jews? What Pilate means is, are you a threat to me? Are you a threat to my position or my power? Are you a rival? That's what Pilate wants to know. And Jesus gives this rather ambiguous answer. He says, you have said so. Kind of neither one thing or the other, perhaps. But pretty quickly, Pilate decides that this quiet, dignified, rather mysterious Jewish teacher is no threat to him in the sense that he realizes Jesus is not about to start a military revolution, which is his concern. But he's getting very concerned about this increasingly agitated crowd in front of him who seem to desperately want Jesus dead. And the last thing Pilate wants is a riot on his hands, especially during Passover, when who knows how that could escalate and end. He just needs the problem to go away. So his eyes, or his eyes, mind kind of lights up when he hears that Jesus is a Galilean. He thinks, great, I'll send him to Herod. Herod can deal with him. Herod's Jewish. Maybe he can pacify this religious argument and make the whole thing go away. So, what do we see about Jesus? What do we see about ourselves in this first encounter with Pilate? What do you notice in terms of Jesus? Do you notice how Jesus seems to be deliberately ambiguous? You have said so, he says. And Pilate's like saying, do you have a political agenda or don't you have a political agenda? And Jesus says, yes. He's kind of deliberately ambiguous. The other day I was, I was playing golf and I said to the guy in the pro shop uh, before I played, I said to him, shall I pay by card or by cash? And the guy obviously wasn't quite listening. He just said, yes. <laughs> and didn't quite know what to do with it. And obviously, uh, and Jesus is saying, I don't have, what, what Jesus means by this kind of ambiguous answer, it's like he's saying to Pilate, I, I don't have an agenda in, in the sense that you mean. I'm not a military, uh, political, nationalistic king. He's saying, actually, I'm something far greater than that. I am the king. 
I'm the king of the universe. I'm, I'm ushering in not a temporary political military regime, but I'm ushering in the external kingdom, the eternal kingdom of heaven. So my answer is kind of yes and no, I suppose. That's what Jesus is getting at. What do we see about us in this encounter? I was exploring this in myself this week and kind of reflecting as, as much as I'd like to dismiss Pilate as a, a, diff- a man of bygone age, a violent man of a different era, I'm not sure I can quite dismiss him as just like that. There is something of me in him. And what I mean by that is that Pilate's main concern about Jesus, I think, is that Jesus might be a danger to his way of life. That he might affect his grip on power. And so I just was asking myself, are there times when I kind of hold Jesus' arm's length because to acknowledge him as king basically means he's in charge and I'm not? Then I was thinking, well, when I look at how he uses his kingship, how Jesus uses his heavenly lordship, the way he uses it to serve, to suffer, the way he lays down his power, the dignity that he displays, then I guess I'm reminded that it's not just common sense. It's not just pragmatic to submit to Jesus' lordship and kingship. But, but it's a joy to do so when this is a God who uses it as he does. Second encounter is with Herod. So Jesus gets shipped off to Herod. And Herod has a very different agenda to either the religious authorities or to Pilate. He doesn't see Jesus as a threat particularly. And neither is he bothered in the slightest about Jesus' religious claims to, uh, and, the, and the controversy that he's stirred up. Herod has a different agenda. Herod just wants to be entertained. Did you notice that in the, in the encounter? Verse 8, Luke says, Herod had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So Herod's court, we know, or we think we know, was a pretty debauched place as a rule. Uh, it was a place of kind of sex and drugs and violence. And you may know the story when, when Herod ended up executing John the Baptist because his lover's daughter performed an exotic dance for him. That's the kind of place that Herod's court was. And all Herod wants to do is to have some exotic tricks done for him in his court, basically. And Jesus doesn't utter a word. I don't know how long this encounter went on, but it must have been quite something for all of these questions and suggestions to have been thrown at him. He just remains totally silent through the whole thing. And so Herod gets quickly bored, basically, mocks him, and sends him back to Pilate. So, what do we see about Jesus? And what do we see about humanity, ourselves? Well, in Jesus, can we see the, the calmness and the poise and the focus of Jesus. He has no interest in fulfilling someone else's agenda. He just lets it go with such poise and such calm. His dignified silence basically says, I'm not here to perform for you. I'm here to usher in the kingdom of heaven, and I'm not going to be distracted from that. Jesus has no need to defend himself or justify himself or get himself out of trouble. He's just utterly focused on what lies ahead, bringing people into the kingdom of God. And then with Herod, humanity here, it's, again, it's quite hard to identify with him. You couldn't really wish for a more extreme character. If you've seen the film The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson portrays Herod as an incredibly extreme, um, kind of debauched character. But, but there are times, if I'm honest, I was thinking this week, there are times when I, I, 
A bit like Herod, because I just want Jesus to do nice things for me. Maybe it's just me. I want my Christianity to be a bit like the genie in the lamp. I, I, and I rub it, and I get to make a wish. Well, that's different to asking myself, is, is Jesus a Lord? Is he king? Or is he the means by which I, I get what I want? So, Pilate is now faced with the problem of Jesus again. He thought he'd got rid of him, but Jesus comes back. And he tells the crowd that Jesus is innocent. Look, even your own Herod agrees with me, he basically says. I'll even punish him. That will make you feel better, Pilate says. And by punishment, he means flogging, scourging with a whip um, of uh, cord and, and bone. Horrific thing. By this point, the crowd has grown in number and in rage. And some bright spark in the crowd recalls that it was Pilate's custom every year during Passover as a kind of patronizing gesture of goodwill to release a Jewish prisoner. And so this bright spark holds Pilate to this and demands the release of Barabbas, which brings us to the third encounter in this passage. And now Pilate is faced with a terrible irony. Is he really going to release a man who is guilty of exactly what he knows Jesus to be innocent of, which is leading a violent physical rebellion. And in fact, Barabbas is a murderer to boot. So Barabbas is, is on death row. And so you can only imagine his amazement when the key turns in the lock and his cell door swings open and the Roman soldiers lead him blinking into the daylight, not to his crucifixion as he assumed, but to his freedom. And again, Pilate insists that Jesus is not guilty of any crimes. Do you see how Luke is telling us that over and over again, that Pilate knew that Jesus to be innocent, that he should be released? Now, bear in mind, by this time, by the time that Jesus has returned to Pilate, as it were, the other gospel accounts, if you put, if you put them together, they tell us that by this moment, when Barabbas is released, Jesus has already indeed been punished. He has already been flogged to within an inch of his life. And I mean within an inch of his life. As if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, you'll know what that looks like. And bluntly speaking, by this point, Jesus is a bloodied, beaten, mutilated mess. Barely able to stand or to breathe. With a, I think by this point, with a sadistic crown of nails effectively rammed into his skull. And yet still, this crowd scream for his crucifixion. And by now, Pilate is really starting to panic. He thinks there's going to be a riot here. This is going to escalate. This is going to get out of hand. And this is a riot here. I'm going to feel the shepherd's crook from Rome. And I'll be out before I know it. And so because Pilate's main concern continues to be his position, his power, his fear of a riot, he gives in. And he finally sanctions Jesus' crucifixion. Verse 24. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Excuse me. What do we see of Jesus in this third encounter with Barabbas? In simple terms, we see him changing places with a rebel. We see on the one hand, Jesus' utter innocence, his purity, his freedom is exchanged for the guilt of a rebel. Jesus is literally dying in Barabbas' place so that Barabbas can walk free. 
And in that sense, you couldn't wish for a, a clearer gospel picture. Barabbas is, is you and me, which again feels jarring, just as it feels jarring to associate ourselves with Pilate and Herod, because these are extreme characters, very different from us. I don't think many people here are literally criminals and murderers like Barabbas. But I think what Luke wants to point us to is to say we are rebels. No matter how subtly we all set ourselves up as our own kings, as our own authorities in the place of the true king. That's one of the themes of the Bible ever since Adam and Eve, right back at the beginning. You look at what Adam and Eve basically said to God. They said to God, really, your rule and reign, God, is is not where true freedom is to be found. We want to call the shots. That's what happened in that first moment of humanity encountering God. And humanity has done that ever since in all kinds of ways with results that we can see across history and across the world. And so really, Jesus' exchange with Barabbas is a microcosm of the gospel because you have the true king, the true king, ensuring somehow that both justice and mercy can take place because he suffers and dies himself that we might go free. And how should we respond? Well, I think the fourth encounter is helpful to think about how we might respond to what we see in this passage. Jesus is made, as tradition dictated, as a crucified criminal, he was made to carry his own cross. And so he carries it towards the outside of the city. Uh, And such is the exhaustion that he was experiencing that a Roman soldier realizes he's never going to make it. And they've got plenty of people to crucify, and so he needs very pragmatically to make sure this happens. And so out of nothing but sheer pragmatism, the soldier looks around and just, I think, just grabs the nearest healthy young man that he can see to carry this cross so we can get this thing done. And this young man we know, or this man, is Simon. His name was Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene would be in modern-day Libya. And therefore we know that he, like lots of other Jews at the time, um, would have traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. That's why Simon was there. Um, as opposed to being in Cyrene. Now, we don't know why Simon was in the crowd. We don't know why he was there close enough to be kind of hauled out by a, a Roman soldier. Maybe Simon was supportive of Jesus' crucifixion, thinking, yeah, this needs to be done. Given what this man has claimed, he's a heretic and a blasphemer, he may be supportive of it. I don't know. Maybe he was just horrified by it. Just the sheer horror of what was taking place. They just couldn't take his eyes off it. And maybe he was sympathetic to Jesus. Maybe something about what he'd heard or seen of Jesus was just drawing him to him. And this just didn't seem right. We don't know why Simon was there. But, interestingly, in Mark's gospel, uh, Mark gives the same account. And Mark also refers to this moment of Simon encountering Jesus. And Mark describes him as Simon of Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus. Now Mark, we know, was writing his gospel account to the early Christians in Rome. And the way that Mark refers to these two guys, Alexander and Rufus, it's, it's clear that he's assuming that his readers would know who they were. It's like Mark is saying, you know, Alexander and Rufus. Simon's sons. Remember, you, you know them. You can ask them if you want to know what their father encountered of Jesus. That's the, the tone with which Mark is writing. And so many commentators have concluded that Alexander and Rufus, Simon's sons, must have been well-known Christians in the early church to be referred to like that. 
which makes me wonder. Were Alexander and Rufus Christians because, at least in part, their father, Simon, became a Christian after encountering Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection? Did Simon's personal encounter with the suffering Jesus lead him ultimately to place his faith in the risen Jesus? As Simon carried the cross for Jesus, was he in the process of becoming a disciple of Jesus? After all, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9 um, that Jesus said that a true disciple of his would be someone who would, quote, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Is that what's happening to Simon? Was Simon one of the Cyrenians that Luke tells us in Acts 2 received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? Uh, a few years after Jesus' resurrection from which the early church sprang into life. Now, appreciate I'm, I'm in the realm of speculation now. It's not, the Bible doesn't tell us these things. I'm speculating. However, it does seem like Simon, at the very least, had a pretty extraordinary encounter with Jesus. He met with Jesus in this extraordinary moment. He met with the courage and the determination and the dignity and the love of Jesus. And so as we come into the home stretch and close, you see, just recap a moment. Pilate, think about this, Pilate had an encounter with Jesus and because his main concern, I think, was to hold on to his position, to his power, he missed the fact that the eternal king of heaven was standing in front of him. Herod had an encounter with Jesus and because his main concern was to get Jesus to give him an exciting religious experience, he missed the fact that the eternal king of heaven was standing in front of him. Barabbas had an encounter with Jesus and although he got to walk free, as far as we know, he was totally unaware or even concerned that it was the eternal king of heaven who had made it all possible. And then Simon had an encounter with the eternal king of heaven which may well have transformed his and his family's life. See, when you, when you see Jesus, when you see the way that he Responds. That's what we've been trying to do in this series, to really look at him and get a sense of his self. When you see the way Jesus responds to hatred and abuse, with dignity and even forgiveness, when you see the way that Jesus responds to temptation, the temptation to make it all go away, which he could have done with one whispered command to the heavenly hosts and it all would have stopped. When you see the way that Jesus uses power by laying it down, by becoming the least of all, by, by serving, not domineering. Jesus uses power so differently, perhaps, to how our culture uses power. He uses, he uses it to serve, not to control and domineer. When you see the, this cocktail, this combination of both justice and mercy at work, punishment for rebellion being paid, and at the same time it being paid by God himself so that even the worst of sinners can go free. When you see that about Jesus, when you encounter that about him, then I think, unlike Pilate, we can joyfully submit to Jesus' lordship and relinquish our desire to hold on to power. Unlike Pilate and Herod, we can learn to use power like Jesus to serve, not to control. And unlike Herod, we can joyfully join in with Jesus' agenda, not try and coerce him into ours. And like Simon, we can explore what it means to really follow this Jesus, wherever that might lead, 
to genuinely deny ourselves and our desire for power or comfort or reputation and pick up our cross and follow him. In a moment we're going to pray and take some time to sing and respond. So Emma, maybe you and the band could, could join me. And I don't know what God has been saying to you through these series of encounters, these last nine weeks, or through these series of encounters just in this passage this morning. There's just so much in there. Um, but in these moments, I just would encourage us to use uh, the songs that we're singing to, to respond to him and to encounter him as Simon did, I guess, to say, Do you know what? This is a God I'm willing to follow. I'm even willing to pick up my cross and follow. I don't know where Simon's journey led him. I am speculating there. But it is, is it not, a beautiful picture of what it means. It's a beautiful and a uh, sobering picture of what it means to, to follow Jesus. Is to actually pick up a cross, whatever that might mean and wherever that might lead, and to go with him accordingly. I hope that's been helpful. And if it hasn't, you can do as you wish. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, we just ask that as we close this, this series of uh, encounters, we just pray that we would know that as part of our experience of being Christians, that we would continually encounter you as you really are uh, for fresh times, day after day. And we pray that if we've never encountered you before, that we would experience the joy of encountering you for the fresh time. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are, the way that you use power to serve the dignity with which you walked, the perfection and the innocence with which you walked. And we thank you that the gospel tells us that all of that dignity and righteousness and perfection and innocence has been given to us, that we might go free and enjoy it because you were prepared to lay it all down. You lost all of those things in order that we might have them. I know you forever. Amen. Amen.